Hello, my name is Anne-Marie Cannon, and I'm the host of Armchair Historians. What's your favorite history? Each episode begins with this one question. Our guests come from all walks of life. YouTube celebrities, comedians, historians, even neighbors from the small mountain community that I live in. They're people who love history and get really excited about a particular time, place, or person from our distant or not-so-distant past. The jumping-off point is the place where they became curious, then entered the rabbit hole into discovery. Fueled by an unrelenting need to know more, we look at history through the filter of other people's eyes. Armchair Historians is a Belgian Rabbit production. Stay up to date with us through Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Wherever you listen to your podcast, that is where you'll find us. Armchair Historians is an independent, commercial-free podcast. If you'd like to support the show and keep it ad-free, you can buy us a cup of coffee through Ko-fi, or you can become a patron through Patreon. Links to both in the episode notes. In this episode of Armchair Historians, I had the pleasure of talking to James McKissick a couple of weeks ago. James shared with me the story of his great-great-great-grandfather, Wilson Woods. It's quite a remarkable story. Now, I found this story by listening to another podcast, Historically Black. It's a good podcast. I highly recommend it. Without going into too much detail, I will tell you that Wilson Woods was born into slavery in the 1820s. And one of the most remarkable things about Wilson is that in 1868, he purchased a farm along the Tennessee River that is still in the family today. James McKissick, welcome and thank you for being here today. So what's your favorite history that we're going to be talking about today? Well, Anne-Marie, first, thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you today. And um, my favorite history, which I'm going to share today, is about my ancestor, Wilson Woods. Wilson Woods. So I know a little bit about it because I found you through a wonderful podcast called Historically Black. And I was so stoked because I am a history genealogy geek, uh, DNA. Hopefully we'll talk a little bit about your DNA results and what you found out. Tell us about Wilson. Tell us about this ancestor of yours. Well, Wilson Woods was my great-great-great-grandfather, and he was enslaved in Meigs County, Tennessee. We think that, uh, well, we know that he was a, a farmer, a person who grew things, and he was just a really incredible person because after emancipation, um, he went on to work and purchase land. And the exciting thing to me is that that land is still in my family today. So I always, you know, love to take an opportunity to tell his story. And also, you know, people are reach out to me a lot about the podcast, you know, Historically Black and his bill of sale and all of those things. So I'm just here to share today and and dialogue. Well, why don't you tell us about his story. I, you know, I don't know the whole story. I know bits and pieces because of listening to the podcast. And the touchstone for that podcast was his bill of sale. Yeah. So um, my family had had a copy of his bill of sale for a while. And I just, I mean, I had seen it 
I never really thought much about it. I think that a lot of times people try to not think about those types of things. When the National Museum for African American and History and Culture opened up, um, which a lot of people called the Blacksonian, there were lots of opportunities to really share information about Black family history and celebrate Black heritage in our country. There was a blog that was collecting images of Black family artifacts uh, to coincide with the opening of the museum. And I just, I, it was the weirdest thing. I just one day um, did a screenshot of this document and sent it to them because I thought it might be interesting to people. And um, lo and behold, they used it on the blog. And um, I mean, I guess it was interesting because it led to uh, being reached out to do a podcast from Minnesota Public Radio, you know, the Historically Black Podcast. Um, it led to an article in the Washington Post, led to lots of other things that we can talk about too, but that was really the impetus for getting all of this started. I think that the wildest thing, though, to me was uh, that it led to me actually being able to go to the courthouse in Meigs County, Tennessee, and see and touch and experience the real document, which was kind of breathtaking at that point. And I was listening to the episode again last night, and they said that you and your mother put your hand on it. Yeah. And that was, yeah, that was a moment. And what did that feel like? It felt, it just felt like a moment to connect to him. Like he was a real person. Really, I can visit his grave anytime because he's buried in our family cemetery, but that was just a, a slab with a name etched into it. You know, I had no concept of this person, but the document and actually seeing it in a book filled with other documents and, um, you know, in the calligraphy from <laughs> the 19th century was just something to behold. And uh, even, you know, it's... Uh, it, the wildest part, too, was, you know, surrounding his bill of sale were the bill of sales of other black people. Um, but his had his name on it. You know, he was actually named. Uh, but many other ones just said things like a boy, two girls, you know, a man, a woman. Um, and those people are attached to families, too. But I just think, you know, they will never be able to really connect to their ancestor in that way because uh, the names just do not exist. They were not even considered human enough to, to put a name. They were just property. It's the thing that strikes me in doing research. I'm researching a woman named Clara Brown. Uh, she was, Have you ever heard of her? I, know, I mean, I don't think so. Can you tell me a little about well, her? Well, Clara Brown is a woman that came into... Hers is one of those stories, like... Uh, she was uh, a slave. Uh, she was born in 1800. In 1859, she gets her uh, freedom. She was married and had a bunch of kids. And they got separated because uh, the plantation owner died and the family sold off their property. Mm -hmm. And her, she never forgot about that. So uh, when she 
was freed, she had to leave the the um, state that she was in because at the time, uh, slavery still existed in the South, uh, and it was before the Civil War. And so she had heard that one of her daughters had come out West. And so she found a way to get passage on, um, you know, a wagon train coming out to Colorado. And she was 59 years old. Okay. And after that hard life that she lived and she, the way she did it is she cleaned the laundry and made food for the people on the wagon train. She comes out to, uh, Central City area, and she sets up a, a shop where she's doing laundry. But she's also a really good Christian woman. You know, she's always taking care of the needy, you know, black or white, whatever. Out West, in, when people are just trying to get it together, you know, set up these, well, basically exploit the native lands, but uh, set up these towns the discrimination, I, I don't want to say it wasn't as bad because it was, but there were more people who were willing to work with uh, the community. And she was one of those women that was uh, people that was taken into the community. Um, white and black alike res like respected her. So Aunt Clara um, doesn't find her children, but she sets up a laundry and she puts away $10,000 cleaning other people's clothes. She invests in an African-American um, mining company here in the town I live in. She was very, even though she didn't live here, she th had a lot of influence on this town. And when the civil war was over, she took that money. She went back to the South and she looked for her family and friends. She brought back 30 people that had been freed. A lot of them settled here in the town I live in. And um, she didn't find any of her children, but she I think she found one of her nieces. Anyway, so they come here. She's spent all of her money on this venture. She's destitute because of it, but because yeah. she had won the, the love and respect of so many people that people here um, in Colorado, a lot of people petitioned the government to give her a pioneer's pension. Women at the time did oh, not get okay. a pioneer's pe pension, but yeah. because they felt that she embodied the spirit of the pioneer in all positive ways, she was the first and maybe only, but I'm not sure about that, woman to collect the pioneer's pension. And she went... That's fascinating. It's amazing. Sorry, I'm surprised more people don't know about her. That's become my goal is it almost sounds like the script for a movie or something oh yeah definitely but yeah. i will tell you there's one other caveat about this in the end just before she dies she does find one of her daughters oh and wow. they're able to reconnect and so yeah i don't know as i was thinking about this show and interviewing you i was thinking i wonder if i wonder if i could find her children you know like I, i'm having this thought like maybe i can it's yeah. so hard though because they could have like when they were split up they might have just been listed as you know boy girl older boy i mean well we do have one known child from her and if any okay. of that this is what i'm thinking if any of the offspring of that child had their dna done 
I know it's, it would be a, you know what, it's, it would be a long life, long life pursuit, but maybe somebody's already done it and I don't know it, but I just felt, I've always felt this kinship with Aunt Clara from way before when I came here. And then I thought maybe. And it's true that the DNA can open up so many different, I mean, just connections and opportunities. And, you know, I can tell you stories about how after uh, the podcast happened and, you know, I did a DNA test, it just linked me to lots of new family members and new experiences. But yeah, I mean, if one of them did a DNA test and you had the, the descendant that you know do it, they they could be connected. It's stuff I'm thinking. We'll see. I have a lot of energy around it. So we'll see if I, you know, how far I go with it. But let's get back to your family. And why yeah. don't you tell me the narrative of Wilson? Wilson was um, born around, uh, I think, 1820. It's so hard to pinpoint, you know, because of the record keeping and whatnot. Um, and the, the story that we always heard was, it, well, I'll tell you the, the wild thing is that the story that we always heard in our family was that the land in our family came through Wilson's wife and uh, Sarah Talaferro, who was Wilson's wife. Come to find out, you know, with the research and everything, we understand now that that's not the case, that the land was actually purchased by Wilson. But Sarah played a huge part because um, one thing that I've learned is the way that the women in my family have uh, preserved and maintained the land assets and passed them to the next generation. So even after Wilson died, Sarah held on to it and then passed it on to their children who even some of those males died early, but their wives passed it on. And um, the land now has been inherited because my grandmother passed it on, who was married to a descendant of Wilson. His name was James Wood. That was my grandfather. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of interesting, too, like you said about Clara. On the farm, uh, there's a cemetery that was used by the community and by the family, which is still there. Um, There was a school and a church, like a one-room schoolhouse slash church, which uh, was built. Um, It no longer exists, but the foundation is still there. Uh, But that was where the children, of course, would go to school, but also where the family would go to church and other families from around the area would go to church. So there was a lot of that back then, you know, especially after emancipation of people pooling resources, working together, um, doing what they had to do as as families and communities to to provide the things that were needed, like education, like churches. And you really see that within our family, too, and lots of other families. But um, what I did learn is that, you know, Wilson did purchase his farm for around Two thousand dollars. Wow! And what year was this? This would have been like in eighteen, um, I think eighteen eighty around that wow. period. I wonder what that. I wonder how much that would be worth today. I know, right? <laughs> Probably a lot. But that was what was so interesting is that he worked after emancipation and I guess saved up his money. 
and um, did purchase his land. And we even found evidence of what was growing on the land and some of the historical records. So he was growing things like tobacco, corn, he had pigs, just, you know, just, a, I guess it was a typical homestead of, you know, post-emancipation type homestead. And um, they lived and worked. They had lots of children. And um, how many, how so many kids in, did they have? So I, I think it was like 11 children total. Not all of them survived. Though. Okay. So one of the questions I have is, because I, I remember I was looking at your family tree last night, and it seems like some of those kids were born when he was still enslaved. It does, Yeah, I think some of them were born enslaved, and then some were born after emancipation, too. Okay. So what do we know about his origins as far as his, uh, you know, his father, that type of thing? So it's been, since the podcast, one thing that I've learned is, um, so one of my cousins, one of my new cousins, yeah. and that's a story I can tell you about, awesome. <laughs> um, reached out to Dr. Henry Louis Gates Jr., because they do a blog about black genealogy on uh, this website called The Root and um, asked them, because there were some intricacies around the dates of when Wilson was born, when the document was signed, that just did not really add up. So Dr. Gates' team kind of looked into this. Wow. Dr. Gates' team, I love, he's like my favorite. Like, I was thinking about all the questions I want to ask you, and he always asks that question. So what does it make you feel like when you see that document? I know. <laughs> so I told you what I felt like. But um, but what we've learned is that Wilson is really possibly the brother of William and Samuel, the people who were doing the transaction, not so much the son of one of them. So we really feel like Wilson, Samuel, and uh, William Woods, who are all part of the transaction, are brothers, and that Wilson was actually the son of the father. Like the, Oh, so... Yeah, because it just... The way that him, Dr. Gates' uh, description was is that the the people that were actually purchasing or transferring Wilson's ownership would have been too young to be Wilson's okay. parent. They probably were more, more like brothers. I see. That's interesting. Yeah. That is interesting. But no one, I mean, we'll, I guess we'll never know. You know, we just will never know. Well, I think that one of the most interesting things is that Wilson is a family name. And that he was given a family name and not to mistake in the fact that he was an enslaved person by his own father, siblings, whatever. But there does seem to be some indication that he might have had preferential treatment. I don't know. What do you think about that? I mean, it could be. I mean, we, we do hear about that, you know, where enslavers have children by enslaved women and some of them you know do that do things like try to keep them provided yeah. for 
Um, you also hear the opposite where <laughs> they have the children and they sell them, beat them, you know, just do all the terror that, that comes with being an enslaved person. Well, it's shades them, of gray, so. isn't it? Yeah. And then too, this, this part of Tennessee, East Tennessee is, um, part that really resisted becoming part of the Confederacy for a while, but they still ended up doing it, but there was much more uh, affiliation with the Union versus so much the uh, the Confederacy, too. It, they're all stories that, that are worth telling, um, but also, like you said, and I like that you brought it up, there were all these other bills of sales, you know, to girls, that that is as much as their story as we know, and we need to tell that story as we know it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I like that you brought that up. You know, because you think about what was going on in the individual's life, but there was this whole political and social environment, you know, swirling around them too. So, and that's one of the things I thought was interesting. I had not gone back to the historically black uh, website for a long time, but I see now that when they have the link to um, the the podcast, they kind of put it in the context of what's going on. Like the bill of sale would have been signed like the year after the Civil War began, you know. So there's so much going like uh, Abraham Lincoln elected president, Nat Turner and the rebellions happened all of before that. But afterward, um, you know, it just... It's in that period, but during the war and right before the Emancipation Proclamation. Now we have this new piece of information that I didn't know about his paternal, his father, which does would make sense what you said, what Dr. Gates said. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm going to trust what yeah. he says because, yeah. you know, yeah. yeah. He's been doing this. But the other thing that they pointed out, too, is when you look at the bill of sale, you can tell that Wilson Wood, the white Wilson Wood, is uh, no. I mean, William Wood is is probably deceased or no longer in the area. That the document was actually signed and executed after the fact. Okay, like after the trans transaction had already taken place. I see. So now, does he it change where he's living or anything when the no, he continued living in the same area. The farm is in the same area. And then the children that he had, um, the one I'm descended from is a male, a boy named Pink. Woods. Oh, Pink. I saw that name. And that, yeah, that was his name. And, um, he was a farmer, an herbalist, oh, wow. um, a very fascinating person. And, uh, you know, lived for many years. And then he is the father of James Wood, who is my grandfather. Okay. And now did your mom grow up on the farm? She did not grow up on the farm, but she grew up, you know, with access to it and visiting it. Um, In the period between, in their family history, like that nuclear family, some of the older children were born on the farm. And then they moved to a more, uh, a larger area called Cleveland as a family. And then a lot of the children were born there. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, but Cleveland is only like a 15 or 20 minute drive. 
And the farm, what uh, what uh, county is that in? Is that in Meigs? It's in Meigs County, Tennessee. Yeah. So he goes from, uh, was it a plantation that he lived on? I don't even think it was, it was a, farm. a plantation. Okay. Like this part of East Tennessee is not really known for the big plantations. It's the the enslaved people here were a lot more um, farm workers or skilled craftspersons, you know, blacksmiths, um, uh, things like that. And they were just uh, they were owned or enslaved by people in the community. So then he gets his freedom. Just the, is it the year before the Civil War ends? Yes. Because Tennessee is now under Union rule. Mm Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of camp. There were some camps called uh, contraband camps where if you can imagine Tennessee and our river kind of cuts through our state. Below the river, a lot of that was still Confederate. And above the river was Union. So um, a lot of people would escape across the river to the Union side and stay in uh, camps or contraband camps because they were considered contraband, <laughs> you know, objects again. That was the that was what was going on in a lot of places across. So what Tennessee. side of the river was Wilson on? When the- Wilson would have been um, on the south side of the river, but very, it is actually very close to uh, the river, though. So the farm now, actually, there's another river that kind of feeds into the Tennessee River. It's called the Hiawassee River, and his farm is on the Hiawassee River. And that's on the north side? The south side. How does he come into the money to buy this property? Do we know? No one knows. I mean, he must have just worked and saved. I mean, I wish I had that work ethic, <laughs> that ability to save. Like my, I have the work ethic, but it's the saving that I wish I. I could wish do. I had both. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, saving and uh, so well. You're saying that it was probably about 1880 when he bought the property. So he had 15 years. Aunt Clara saved ten thousand dollars in a matter of a couple of years, so yeah, so it could be done. So yeah. he was just determined. So were all of his children by Sarah? To my understanding, they all were. By so they Sarah. were together. They were on the farm, the uh, wood farm. Mm-hmm. So they were lifelong yes. partners. Um, yes, they were. They had a lot of kids too. They had good genes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's the the interesting thing is that so coming to more into the present, the descendants of those different kids, like some of them are still in the area, some are not, um, and then some we just never knew what happened, whether they had kids, whether they lived, yeah. who knows. Um, but after taking the ancestry DNA test, we actually found branches of the family you know, descendants of those yeah. other kids and connected to them. A year later, like a year after the podcast and the articles and whatnot, 
Uh, we had a group of family members come to Tennessee and we had a oh, family wow. reunion at the farm and they got to go visit the courthouse to see the bill of sale, um, got to tour the lands, uh, visit the yeah. cemetery. And these were people from California, Hawaii, St. Louis. How many Louis. people about showed up? There was at least, I would say, 80 <gasps> that came. And that's wow. inclu- not including the ones that all are from here who joined in and came together too so that is so amazing yeah it's that, that's what i love about the dna it's that tangibility of you know we share this we share this ancestor yeah even finding a document or another piece of the story i love that that's amazing and a lot of them were the ancestors or the descendants of Moses, who you probably see on the family tree. And Moses was the oldest child of uh, Sarah and uh, Wilson. Okay. And what we what we feel is that he immigrated, like many black people did, north to St. Louis, and then you know that family grew and expanded from there. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So some stayed in the north, uh, some stayed in the south, some stayed in the north. We have people in uh, D.C., St. Louis, um, different places around the country. That's amazing that you've been able to connect that way. And so many people found you through the DNA. Now, did those people have any idea until the DNA that this was their ancestor that they were able to latch onto your tree and understand their history more. I don't think that no. was a big uh, epiphany for them. It really was. Cause I knew, I think they um, knew the name of Moses and Moses had a daughter who was named Magnolia. And that was like the person who really uh, was the start of the large family there so they were very intimately aware of them, but I don't think they had ever connected it back to Tennessee and never, I guess, in their wildest dreams would think about actually connecting it to a place, like a plot, you know, yeah. <laughs> coordinates on a map that they could I actually visit. I would love visit. that tangibility of going to a place. Yeah. But I, it, to me, and it, it's really sad to say this, but... And I had always had access to it my entire life. So I never thought of what a big deal it was. You know, when I was growing up, I thought every family had a cemetery, that it was just the norm, (laughs) that these things got passed down, you know, that people could actually tell me stories about my ancestors. But it's just, it's not. And especially for a lot of black families, it's not, not the case. Right. Um, cause the history has just been erased or, or undocumented. Yeah. Um, or in some cases, you know, the more violent or hurtful things have just been covered up and, and, and not discussed ever again. So, yeah. I'm really grateful that you're here to share this history with me. I, when I started the podcast, I knew that I wanted to have these casual conversations with people about history. And as I've gotten into it, one of the things that I have really tried to do is seek out stories whose history has, like you said, been erased, has been hidden in the shadows. I really 
want to bring those stories out into the light because, you know, the telling of history that I got when I was growing up was, you know, the white male history. I'll just say that. I'll put it that way. And, you know, it was not true. It was not the real history. And so there's so many different nuances. There's so many bigger things that we need to know about that we as human beings are capable of uh, in negative and positive. Yeah, when you agreed to be on the show, I'm just like, thank you so much. Well, I was just going to say, like, what I think what I've learned, especially over the past few years, is that you can tell the story through so many different lenses. Yes. And I think about Wilson's story, we could probably tell it from an an indigenous lens, you know, because, you know, they were being pushed out of the area, losing their land. We could tell the story from the lens of uh, the white a woman who's married to whomever Wilson's dad is. I mean, because she's watching him, uh, you know, have these relationships and, you know, without consent with these black women, you know, that's a whole other story. There's a story that Wilson would tell. There's a story. There's just all these lenses. And I think that the, the more lenses we can look at, um, or look at these stories through and look at history through the richer it is. And it, it, a lot of what we hear in our country now is only tell it one way. Like you said, that, that, um, the one way, the, the white male version of history. And that's just not the case because, you know, so many people were involved in the history of our country from different lives and different perspectives. That was well put. So what else do we need to know about Wilson? Well, if you would like to ever visit him, you can come to my family cemetery, which is in Meigs County. It's called um, the Woods Cemetery. It's not far from the banks of the Hiawassee River. (laughs) Um, It's a quiet place. I was out there not long ago because we had to bury one of our nephews and um i was just thinking to myself like so many of the people that i ever loved and the people who made me you know are in this space which makes it a really sacred place for me and it's also a a a place where i have good memories like my dad would uh take us camping out there in the cemetery Which is probably where I've gotten my morbid sense of humor from, from those childhood experiences. So is it a private cemetery? Is it a, or is it a community cemetery? So it started more privately and it's on the family land. Um, but there are, there are some community aspects to it because at certain points in, in our state's history, for example, you might have an interracial couple you know, back in the 70s or 80s, and um, they might have to be buried there because, and they might not be family members, but that might be the only cemetery that said, you know, come on, you can be here. So it's it's for all family members and then people adjacent to the family as well. So it's open to the public. It is, yeah. You can if you can find it. It's there's no sign. <laughs> that you know what? That's a good thing. It'll protect it. Is. A lot longer. 
if yeah, if you can find it, it's open to the public. You can walk through. I mean, it's got new stones, you know, from last year all the way back to just rocks um, from, you know, the the 19th century. So it's a fascinating place because, you know, everyone just some just didn't have. They just got buried right in the ground uh, with a rock or with a stone or a wooden cross, you know, just to to mark where they had been. So, yeah, there are parts that are very uh, primitive. So what is the one thing you want my listeners to remember about this history? Um, I would just remember that, you know, as we as we explore genealogy and um, really celebrate our family histories, that we always keep in mind people who don't have that uh, ability or for whom it's much harder because of the way that their ancestors were recorded in, in our country's history, uh, recorded and regarded, you know. And I'm I'm lucky because I do have the name and I can trace the name to the person and then I can work to trace the names back, you know, another generation, another generation. But all of us don't have that. So um, I just think we should just be aware that genealogy is tough and it's tougher for some people. Yeah. Is there anything else that you want us want to share about? the history or about your family or something I didn't ask you? No, I just, I want to just say, you know, thank you for the opportunity to share. And I'll try to send you the links to that Henry Louis Gates article and anything else that your listeners might be interested in. And if they want to reach out to me uh, and just talk or share, I would love that too. Because I love hearing other people's family yeah. histories as well. I do too. I do too. Yeah. I really enjoyed talking to you today, James. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you, and um, thanks for the opportunity to share with other armchair historians. Oh, I like that. Nobody's ever said that. There you have it. James McKissick and his great-great-great-grandfather, Wilson Woods. For more on Wilson Woods, including the Henry Louis Gates article, do check out our episode notes. Thanks for listening. Have a great week.